This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action, Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Mike Yuseem, Faculty Director of the Leadership Center in the McNulty Leadership Program, and I'm flying solo today. My friends and co-host Ann Greenhall and Jeff Klein are, are off. Uh, before we begin, I just want to remind listeners that you can take in new episodes of our show that premiere every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And of course, don't forget to follow us on SXM Business. Well, welcome to the program, everybody. And uh, it's been about 20 years, almost to the day, since the uh, infamous terrorist attack on September 11, 2001, which included, of course, the destruction of the World Trade Center's towers in New York City. Today's guest, Joe Pfeiffer, was the first fire chief at that scene. He's just published a memoir that takes us back to that time, not to relive the horror, but to remember the bravery and heroism of our first responders on that dark day and the months and years that followed. So Joe Pfeiffer is now retired from the New York City Fire Department a couple of years back, and his book is called Make a Mental Note, Ordinary Heroes, A Memoir of 9-11. Joe, welcome back to Leadership in Action. Mike, it's good to see you again. Great to be with you. And Joe, we had a, a round on this back in September 2011, it was. So good to be with you almost uh, exactly 20 years later. You lived it, you thought about it, you've written about it, and you've shaped public policy about not only this disaster, but many others in the years since. But Joe, I'm going to uh, begin by taking us back to that very fateful morning, uh, certainly for you, but for millions of other people, when you had been called on a routine um, or for a routine inspection of what people thought was a gas leak not too far from ground zero. Um, it was a bright, beautiful day. You're looking down and all of a sudden there was this roar of an overcraft uh, of an aircraft overhead and you happen to have a film crew with you. So take us back to that moment. We're going to work forward with that chronology. That morning I had Jules Naudet, one of the French filmmakers, riding with me in the chief's car. And we were going to a ordinary, a routine odor of gas in the street. We're about 10 blocks away from the World Trade Center. And all of a sudden, we heard this loud noise of a plane coming overhead. And as you know, you never hear planes in Manhattan because of the very tall buildings. And then I saw this plane race past us at, at a very low altitude, so low that I could read on the fuselage the word American. And as the airline zoomed past us, it, it um, was hidden by a, a couple of taller buildings. And then when it reappeared, I saw the plane aim and crash into the World Trade Center. So, Joe, a utterly astonishing moment. And I think you did write in your book early on that while many people thought it could have been an accident, there was an aircraft that crashed, I think, into the Empire State Building many years ago. It's not without precedent, but you pretty quickly concluded, taking everything into account, this was more than a pilot error. This seemed to be intentional. So given that um, you loaded uh, Jules, you're, you're very able filmmaker. Many people have seen what has become the famous film by, by Jules and his brother. And you headed as the first chief towards the fire to arrive, um, well, more than a fire, towards the, uh, the site. So as you're in your vehicle, uh, and I've ridden with you and others in a chief's vehicle. It's very well equipped with all kinds of radio equipment and, and beyond. What was passing through your mind? What did you do? What were you thinking? What did you anticipate? Yeah, and I know, Mike, uh, you rode with me uh, 
uh, one day when you you were up in New York with lights and sirens going, and and it, that's what it's, it it was like. Um, lights and sirens blasting. I gave a quick report on the radio that a plane just crashed into the World Trade Center, and I ordered for 100 firefighters to come to the scene. But then I remember sitting in the chief's car and, and saying to my aide that this was a direct attack. And those were my exact words captured on film. And then I remember saying to myself as a hundred thoughts were racing through my brain, slow down and let me, let me think for a second, what do I need to do next? And I took about 60 seconds to deliberately think. And I got on the radio again. And my exact words were that we have a number of floors on fire, that it looked like the plane was aiming for the building. Now transmit a third alarm, asking for more than 150 firefighters to come to the scene, even before I got there. And then I gave some specific directions what I wanted those units to do. Joe, you're a practiced hand at incident management, as the phrase goes. You've been on many, many fires over a number of years in New York City, other kinds of disasters as well. Say a few more words about taking that one minute to think what you ought to do. Just what went into that? Why did you do that? And I guess back to the main point in asking the question, what do you think you did differently as a result of taking 30 seconds or 60 seconds to steady your thinking, to focus your thinking, and then to issue your instructions. Firefighters, um, first responders, we like to, to work out of the intuitive part of the brain, just reacting to things very, very quickly. Um, and there's some value to, the, to that, and we could talk about that later. But that's not the only way we have to make decisions. And at this moment, I had to do what, what pilots have been known to do, is create a deliberate calm. And what, what I call deliberate thinking. So forcing myself to think and, and asking, what do I need to do in this moment? Let me step back, look at what's taking place, meaning looking at the tower, knowing the units that are coming to the scene and knowing that at least initially I was going to be in charge. And I had to focus on what was the most important thing. And, and for me at that moment was asking for extra resources and to let my firefighters know that this was a terrorist event. By the way, Joe, I know you know this, but in military aviation, there's, often offered up the phrase, look at the clock. So if you're a military aviator bringing an F-18 onto a carrier deck, things are going a little bit nuts. You're low on fuel, the weather is bad, the carrier is tipping. Uh, the statement, look at the clock, is to deliberately focus your own concentration on something that is working. The clock still works. Mm -hmm. Collect your thoughts then, and then take the actions. Joe, the tradition in your world is that the most uh, ranking senior person on a scene does become, at least temporarily at the outset, the incident commander, which gives you enormous authority. So, as I recall, you walked into the um, North Tower. So give us the chronology of what happened when you arrived. You've got the message sent out, you're focused, what what happened then? When I arrived in front of the building, I put my gear on, my 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 bunker coat, pants, boots, and a helmet, and I began to to walk inside. And immediately to my right were two people badly burnt. And when you see something like that, you want to go to help. But I forced myself not to do that because I knew immediately behind me my firefighters and EMS, that they were going to take care of the people. And my job was to take command. 
Joe, taking command, the white hat you wore that day designated your rank. It is now in the 9-11 Museum there, um, where the World Trade Center had been. As firefighters arrived, some you knew, most you would not have known personally necessarily. What happens as they do what they are instructed to do, which is to seek out the incident commander, and they presented themselves, and then how did you respond to what, what happened what happened at that point? The uh, firefighters came in quietly, which is unusual for firefighters. We're kind of a noisy group. Um, and, and except for some of the banging of the tools they carried, they came in with a grim look on their face because every single one of them knew as they looked at the burning towers that they were going to the most dangerous fire of their lives. And their officer, so the person in charge of the unit, whether a lieutenant or a captain, came up to me and, and said, Chief, what do you want me to do? And my plan initially was to evacuate the building, then we'll regroup on the upper floors to rescue those that were trapped. That's great. Joe, I'm going to break in for a second just to let our listeners know that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Hussein, and our guest today is retired New York City Fire Chief Joseph Pfeiffer, and we're talking about his just-published book, Ordinary Heroes and Memoir of 9-11. Joe, to resume the narrative, uh, you've got dozens and hundreds of firefighters streaming into both the towers because the South Tower then uh, uh, was, of course, subsequently hit. And as you're sending firefighters up um, elevators, most of them, as I recall, not working. Maybe one was still functional. But in any case, most of the firefighters are heading up many, many um uh, levels of stairs up to the 70th plus uh, floor. What is going through your mind at that point? What, what are you thinking about as they have now um, dismissed themselves? They're, they're gone. They're heading upstairs. What's on your mind? My concern, because none of the elevators in the North Tower were working. So that meant they had to climb. And the impact in the North Tower was between the 93rd and the 96th floor. But the information we were getting at the time that was the fire was somewhere above the 78th. So I ordered them to go up to the 70th floor. I thought that was a good margin of safety that we would regroup up there and then push to get through the flames to rescue those that were, that were, were trapped. Um, so, but my concern was for the firefighters and their safety. So not only did they, I send them up as the units, engines and ladders and rescue and, and hazmat, um, I also sent the battalion chief up with them. That morning, 23 battalion chiefs responded. Only four of us survived. And that's because we sent them up to protect uh, and look after our firefighters. Joe, just so our listeners understand nomenclature, a battalion chief would typically have how many firefighters working for him or for her? They, they would have a, a number of units working for them, say, say five different units, and each unit has five or six people in. So we try to keep it closely supervised. Joe, at, at this point, we're going to spend a few minutes more on the narrative, and then I want to bring us into the present, how the ideas that many of which you developed in the aftermath of this have become almost standard operating procedure now for dealing with high-rise fires and terrorist attacks. Um, as the firefighters are heading up with the battalion chief, some of them with them, I think it's implicit in what you said. They knew what to do. You didn't have to give a whole lot of instructions. They were they had delegated authority, extremely well-trained, very experienced. So do I capture the flavor of that moment correctly? 
You, you do, Mike. And um, as they were going up, people were coming down. And this is, these are narrow stairs, maybe four feet at, at the most. And as people were coming down, our firefighters told them, don't stop. Keep going. You can make it out of here. And those very simple words um, made a difference to those that survived. And that was really the, the reason for, for uh, naming my book Ordinary Heroes, because those ordinary words made a difference for those people to, to go down and not to stop. Yes. And my firefighters were their ordinary heroes that saved their lives that day. Indeed. So we're going to move it forward a bit. And by the way, side note here, very important note is uh, um, Joe's brother was among those who are heading up. And shifting then the action to a few minutes later, the South Tower is subsequently hit. And then, of course, the South Tower, though, hit secondly, was the first to come down. You at the time of the collapse of the South Tower are still in the lobby of the North Tower. Uh, it turned black, a tremendous roar. Again, back to your state of mind, what did you think was happening and how did you react? When I heard this loud rumbling sound, and what it sounded like was if you ever stand underneath a train trestle and you hear a train approaching and it gets louder and louder and it dissipates, that's exactly what it sounded like. But I had no idea that what many saw on TV was this, the collapse of the South Tower. I had no idea that a 110-story building just collapsed. What I thought was that part of the, the plane was falling from above into the lobby through the, the big glass windows or maybe through the elevator shaft, that we were the only ones, um, the only ones in trouble. And then as the lobby went dark, um, I knew we couldn't command in this darkness where you can't even see the person next to you. And again, I took less than a minute to think, to deliberately think, if we can't command, what do, what do I need to do now? And I got on the radio and I said, command to all units in Tower One, evacuate the building. That simple, that's dark. And Joe, I think uh, by popular parlance, people know the phrase mayday, mayday, mayday. So your decision to evacuate or to make that statement rather than mayday, tell us uh, the difference in how you would have used those phrases or why you use one and not the other today. If I knew that a whole skyscraper collapsed, I would have used mayday, 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 and then that same message. But I thought we were the only ones, meaning us, the command staff in the lobby were the only ones in trouble. And um, I had no idea that the building collapsed. And there was 29 minutes between the collapse of the two towers. And that morning, after I got out of the building, I was standing in front of the North Tower. We were trying to regroup the, uh, a number of chiefs. And then we heard another loud rumbling sound. And that was the collapse of the North Tower. And only at that moment did I realize that a building was collapsing. Yeah, so Joe, maybe we'll finish up the focus on the, the particular events with a final question from me. Could you describe what happened as the second tower came down? You weren't terribly far from it. Some of the people near you at the time uh, did not survive it. So walk us through the next 60 or maybe 120 seconds when the North Tower came down very close to where you were. Oh, we're going to take it quicker than that. Actually, 11 seconds. Okay. <laughs> um, the... Uh... When we heard the loud rumbling sound, somebody yelled, the building is collapsing. And I started to run 
towards the west, towards the Hudson River, up Vesey Street. I was on the corner of Vesey and West. And Jules was in front of me, the ca- my, my French cameraman. And he was in jeans and T-shirts and, and sneakers. And he ran faster than I, who, who was in bunker gear. And in 11 seconds, you don't run too fast or too far. And I see Jules crouching down behind a, a small van. And I thought, well, I'm in all my protective gear. Let me jump on top of him to protect my friend. And then we heard the steel and the concrete crashing all around us. And then this beautiful summer day that was so full of bright sunshine in the street, it goes completely dark where I couldn't see the hand in front of my face. And then all that noise of the the crashing building and, and talk on the radio goes completely silent. It was like a new snowfall where, where I heard just this muffled quiet. And for a few seconds in that quiet darkness, I wondered if I was still alive. Everything was black. Totally dark and an unbelievable feeling that we were way too close. So, Joe, just to personalize this, uh, some of your colleagues had me dressed up in what you've called bunker gear. <laughs> it's heavy, but uh, boy, it's sure a good thing to have on. I discovered when we were near a fire, we went to your training facility at Randall's Island. And so um, thank you for protecting Jules, uh, the filmmaker. As I said at the outset, many people now around the world have seen that film that he and his brother created and he kept his camera going uh, throughout that. Um, Joe, in a few minutes, we're going to take a a station break, but I wanted to anticipate where we're going with a brief question and then we'll come back to it. Uh, The disaster, in a sense, in those final 11 seconds, as the North Tower came down, the South Tower having already fallen, uh, the disaster, it's not finished because nearby buildings in the World Trade Center are going to collapse later on. Some are on fire for many hours. But the two big towers now have come down. And this is not not quite yet a turning point, but now it's going to be recovery uh, and ultimately then (laughs) coming back, rebuilding, uh, finding those who may be injured, so in your initial minutes after this sudden depositing of yourself on top of your, your cameraman to protect him, and you did, um, in those next few minutes, I assume you're beginning to think now about rescue and recovery. So tell us just so briefly, and then we're going to take this break, about the next half an hour or so in the immediate after- aftermath of that enormous collapse. Mike, let me, let me paint a picture of um, what that looked like. So the dust started to lift a little bit from complete blackness to, to almost like a foggy mist across the site. And as I walked back to the collapsed buildings and I was surrounded by other firefighters going back to the, to, uh, the devastation, our bunker gear was covered with heavy dust. Our helmets were caked with this gray dust. And I imagined we looked like stone statues standing around the edge of the rubble field of twisted steel and crumbled concrete. And at that moment, we wondered how are we going to rescue anyone that's still alive. And little by little, emerging from the bottom up, we started to build the command structure since our command staff and our backup folks were all killed during the, during the collapse. So Joe, that's where we're gonna re- uh, continue our account in just a couple of minutes. And that is then 
the immediate aftermath is a matter of rescue on the theory. Uh, turned out to be true in a few cases, uh, in most cases not, that there would be a good number of people trapped in the building. There was a famous, uh, almost like an alcove, where a number of firefighters did survive. They were ultimately rescued. We're going to come back to that, and then in particular, some of the ideas that you have been um, working with and promoting through many means in the 20 years since on how to prevent this from happening, or if, heaven forbid, a new disaster strikes, there is a readiness to respond, uh, rescue, and recover. Let me just remind everybody as we take a short break right now, don't go away. That's number one. And when we come back, number two, we're going to continue our dialogue with Joe Pfeiffer, author of Ordinary Heroes, a Memoir of 9-11. I'm Mike Hussein. This is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome back to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Mike Hussein. And our special guest today is retired New York City Fire Chief Joseph Pfeiffer. And we're talking about his new book, Ordinary Heroes, A Memoir of 9-11. Joe, really great to have you on this program uh, around the 20th um, anniversary, if I can use that term here, the 20th year since uh, the attack on the World Trade Center. And we're going to briefly focus in the immediate aftermath of the two buildings coming down and then turn to some of the leadership ideas that you have developed yourself over the years since then about what was needed and what should be around if we ever face something like this again. If you could say, though, before we get on to the leadership principles, a couple um, commentaries on rescue and then recovery and the days ahead for the first and then the months ahead for the latter. What did you do? How were you involved? What, what did it take to rescue and then recover? Well, rescue operations began immediately, but it was from the bottom up, meaning that after our command staff was killed, what happened was the area was divided into four quadrants, just by the physical collapse of the building. And I heard on my radio, deputy chiefs taking command in each of the section. And because I recognized their voice and trusted them, that was the beginning of the command structure um, for rescue operations. And then the next day we put in an incident management system where I became the planning chief. but it also involved firefighters that survived, firefighters that were coming in from other parts of the city and those that responded from home. And we had to start to build a structure, not to mention that there were multiple agencies down there. And, um, and, and not only government agencies, but construction companies, because they had the people with the torches to cut the steel mm. and the large cranes. So this was very much a, a uh, cross-sector collaboration between government and then the private sector. By the way, just on a personal note, I was there with a group of wildland firefighters who simply said, <laughs> we're not fighting a fire out in California, Oregon right now. Maybe we'll go to New York and help out. I think at first you were a little bit perplexed on what they might do because they fight fires over weeks or sometimes months and your fires are of shorter duration. But in this case, it was going to be a long duration recovery. So how did you draw upon the services of not only these wildland firefighters who do the uh, the backcountry firefighting, but thousands and thousands of other volunteers? How, how did you mobilize and then focus their energy? As a... Uh... As the forestry service came in, who, who, as you mentioned, fight wildfires uh, mostly out out west, one of the one of the planning chiefs came up to me. I was standing in front of the firehouse, and he said, "Chief, I could help you." And it's like, "Okay, I've been working endless hours. Uh, this is about a week after it, and I'm pretty exhausted." 
And then he's told me he was from the forestry. And I looked at him and I thought to myself, uh, you're from the forestry. We have one surviving tree, which is still there now. If you go down there, how are you going to help me? And it must have been my look of exhaustion. And he turned to me and said, uh, Chief, we're not going to take over anything. We're here to help you in your planning function to write an incident action plan with you and to, to, to put maps together and help organize it. Um, but I'm here for you. And I think it was this combination of empathy and knowledge and my exhaustion <laughs> where I told them, come in. And I brought them to the third floor of our command, uh, command center and they worked for me. And it literally turned our incident management system around where everybody knew what everybody else was doing by daily briefs and a, a written incident action plan. Joe, let's, let's move forward then. And in your book, you describe in detail now getting to some of the ideas that have come out of this that all of us ought to be thinking about, about uh, radio interoperability, if I can use that term. And that is police uh, had uh, one channel, fire had another channel, other groups that were responsible on that day for intervening had still other uh, channels. And you write with uh, a lot of passion about the importance of having one way to communicate across these silos. So pick up on that, if you will. Let's make that the first lesson. I'm going to ask you about a few others. Uh, of something that you have taken out of this experience that would benefit us, us all in knowing we're going to face much smaller experiences by definition, but we can learn from what you went through for ways we may eventually go through setbacks and crises as well. So let's begin with sharing interoperability among different agencies responsible for the fire. The 9-11 Commission clearly wrote that that not all, that the intelligence agencies didn't share information and they also said that the first responders didn't share information so, so we know that but not until i wrote my book did anyone ask, answer the question why here we have great agencies um nypd fdny and I talked to literally everyone. And that day, all those responders, all of us wanted to do the right thing. There was no battle of the badges. Everybody wanted to do the right thing. But why didn't we talk to each other? And what, what I explained is that as stress of an incident increases, our stress response the neurological hormones in our brain affects what we do. And we turn into our own groups. Um, fire turns to fire, police turns to police, medical turns to medical and, and so forth. And we do that because we wanna protect the people we care about. Similar to a family, um, parents wanna protect their children. Well, commanders wanna protect the people they work with. And because, because of that organizational bias, that social force, um, that that will happen 20 years, that happened 20 years ago, that will happen at the next event today. So the challenge for us is what do we do today for that not to occur? And what we talk about is, as you mentioned, Mike, interoperability. I want voice, video, and data. Not only do I want a radio that we can talk to each other, but I would have given anything for 10 seconds of video that, that, that morning. So now what we do is get live feed video directly into our fire department operations center, not only from police helicopters, but also from news helicopters. And then data, is extremely important. And we, we, we know that from the, the pandemic, 
Um, how many patients are in one hospital? How many ventilators, PPE? So, so those three things of voice, video, and data is critical. But there's one more thing. And one of the greatest lessons we learned from 9-11 is that incident commanders need to stand literally within arm's distance of each other. Because if you and I are standing within arm's distance, there's a chance we will talk. And even if we don't talk, I can read the, the expressions on, on your face. And we made that a city policy. And we, we yeah. shared those, those policies nationally and internationally. Joe, it's a great point of great debate right now, as you well know, as companies are trying to, or many employers are thinking about bringing people back. And those that are advocating that say almost exactly what you've said. There is so much communication that's not verbal at all. And the opportunity to witness somebody's face, to see the look in their eye, really, really vital. In your world, how would you achieve that? Firefighters sit in a building different from police, different from rescue often, and so on. So how, how, do, how do you bring that to life? Uh, I, I actually tell a story in the book about the miracle in the Hudson. And I was working that day, too. <laughs> um, I don't know why I keep getting these things, but, but I didn't go to the scene. I went to our operations center. And I had more information there than they had seen because I was getting direct feed from, from police helicopters and news helicopters. I was also able to connect to LaGuardia Airport and get the manifest from the plane. And I compared that manifest on the plane to the people that, had to, that we took off the plane, the different agencies took off the plane, including uh, New York waterways, but everybody had to pass through our EMS. And I had our EMS chiefs compare those two lists. And before anyone else knew it, we knew that all 155 passengers and crew mm. were alive and safe. And we took that message, gave it back to the incident commanders at the scene, and also put it on a Homeland Security Information Network, which got, got to um, the governor, the, the mayor, and the president of, of the United States. I, I, I say um, in detail um, that there were only two degrees of separation between me and the, and the president at the time. Yep. And of course, the captain, Sully Sullenberger. And I think those that have seen the film uh, do recall the enormous look of relief as he himself was informed took a while uh, that everybody was safe and sound and plucked out of the Hudson. And that got through the, not only the mayor that we told early, um, um, the commissioner told the mayor, but because we posted it on a network that got to the airlines and got to everybody else. So um, I, I saw the movie where, where Sully mentioned how relieved he was when he when he got that news. Yeah, exactly. So, Joe, just now picking that out and just underscoring it briefly and then asking you for another emergent principle. If the first one is sharpening the capacity for quick communication among all the parties involved, really important. We've got the technology. It's often a behavioral or organizational issue. So with that, uh, maybe capping off where we just were, what would be another principle that emerged and now helps how the New York Fire Department does work or other agencies do operate that came out of 9-11? So our first principle is to, is to connect. And then we went into detail on voice, video, and data. The second principle, we touched on part of it, and that's to collaborate. Um, standing with arm's distance, or as you were talking, Mike, um, in a pandemic, sometimes we have to do that through Zoom. And, and we can make that very personal, where it feels like you're talking one-to-one. -one. The other thing about collaborating is we use crisis empathy. What was used on me in front of, in front of the firehouse 
well, when I meet my counterpart, not do I to do I just say what I want. The first thing I say, I I I articulate, I recognize what my counterpart is feeling, or that person's concerns, and I articulate it. And by doing so, that my counterpart realizes that I understand the stress that person is under. And that's how we begin our, our conversation. And, and then the other part of collaboration is, is having a diverse group that, and making people feel in, included. Another incident I had was a sanitation salter out the third floor window. <laughs> um, and I had to put it back in after we rescued the uh, driver. And all the people with stars and commissioners of this and that were standing in a circle. And I was giving a briefing because I was the incident commander. Um, but before I went around to everybody and shook their hand, this is pre-COVID. And, uh, and one of the people I shook hands with was a supervisor. So absolutely the lowest person there was, all his bosses um, were above him. But because I said, hey, I'm Joe Pfeiffer, um, thank you for being here. Um, if you have anything to say, please speak up. By making him feel included, hmm. he raised his hand and said, I'd chief, I don't know if this means anything, but there are high pressure lines and electrical lines behind where that truck is. It's like, no, that means something. So I think we talk a lot about diversity and inclusion in, in our corporations and our agencies. Well, during a disaster, it is more important than ever. It's great. Really good point. Joe, I just want to remind our listeners one final time that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Usame, and we are in dialogue with Joseph Pfeiffer, a New York City Fire Department chief at the time of 9-11, author of the new book, Ordinary Heroes, a Memoir of 9-11. Joe, at this point, our custom on this program is to begin to sum up. And for that, I'd like listeners now to reflect on what Joe has said to this point. Um, you've all thought about 9-11, add, add to your thinking from your own experience. And Joe, I'm going to ask uh, the two of us to bounce back a little bit, a uh, little bit back and forth on, on ideas that we think you're going to lead. I'm going to be a helper here we think our listeners would benefit from in their own leadership and action, the focus of the program. So let me just start to, just to set the, uh, the sort of the walkway here. I wrote down several uh, basically words that sum up points we've touched on, communicate, connect, and make certain you've got empathy or understanding with the person that you are communicating and connecting with. So that's my first point, Joe. Why don't you add one? I'll, we'll go back and forth a little bit on this. Yeah, I, 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 I like those points about connecting and collaborating, um, and collaborating is about communicating. I would just add a, a third point, and that is of coordinating. And in... <laughs> In many schools, we teach people how to debate. And what we should be teaching, and I know business schools and, and other graduate schools teach on how to negotiate. So in the middle of an incident, we don't have to debate, my, my job is better than your job, but we need to negotiate where we're all working together. And those skill sets now become critical because the, the negotiation can mean the difference between life and death. Yes, great point. Joe, let me add my next point here, and that is to say the almost completely obvious, something about imagination. My guess is you never imagined a direct hit on one of the World Trade Centers by a terrorist a piloted aircraft, but it, of course it did happen. Uh, the World Trade Center, if you well, you know well, back in 1993, suffered a bombing then. Very different in the way it was uh, executed, but nonetheless, uh, these uh, towers were of interest to those who would 
try to bring America to its feet. But thinking more affirmatively on this, I'll make a statement. I'm going to ask you to if you can flesh it out from your experience. We need to have uh, imagination when we're involved in risk anticipation and risk management about the kinds of risks that may befall us, even though they are extremely unexpected. So how do we come to expect the really, really unexpected? So that's really a question to get out the next point to you. Imagination is, is, is critical because we, we have the power within us to imagine a better way and to imagine the, the threats we're, we're up against. So in 2003, we had a threat of bioterrorism and um, we had anthrax and we, we had uh, um, SARS of, of, a, of a pandemic, a possible pandemic. And in 2003, in the fire department, we created what we call Biopod, where we send our on-duty folks to a, a point of distribution for medication or vaccine. And, and we used the flu vaccine as a simulation of other medication. And we did it every year since 2003. And then last year with the, the pandemic, uh, or actually, I should say the beginning of this year, uh, when the vaccine became available, because of our imagination, we were able to use that biopod model to oh. distribute vaccine to uh, our, our members of FDNY, to their families, and to people like me, a, a re retired fi firefighter. So um, imagining what could be and then imagining a better system um, go hand in hand. Joe, for some time you were responsible for the anti-terrorism efforts on the part of New York City. And taking that now to our listeners that are running a firm or maybe responsible for a community group, maybe a, a, a healthcare provider, maybe even a larger enterprise, some in government as well. From your own experience, what advice would you have to them for thinking about risk, anticipating risk, and then responding to events that go the wrong way? I think that there are many risks that, that we face. Other terrorist events, uh, our pandemic that, that we're in, climate change. And when we look at that, I think we have to go back 20 years. And in the aftermath of 9-11, what we felt was this sense of unity, both national and, and global, that we're in this together. So I think if, as corporations and, um, and nonprofits and government agencies mm. think about the next big event and the risk we face, we need to come together and face it where we can leverage each other's core competencies to, to deal with these large scale events and to deal with it internationally. Yep. Because we can't solve these problems just by, our, by ourselves. You know, to draw that almost our final point here, 20 years ago before 9-11, most of us didn't have to think about risk and its management. The, uh, the concept of business continuity, a phrase used in business, yeah. Uh, or risk management, just not in the lexicon. And I can't think of a single organization I'm directly familiar with that hasn't brought, brought risk, its um, anticipation and a readiness for it into their operating procedures. So it's, thank goodness, um, uh, a different world. Joe, just to make a final closing comment here on the book, let me read the title again, Ordinary Heroes, A Memoir of 9-11. Uh, you've already mentioned that you're going to be on a program or two, a national program or two. How can people find out more about you? What should they look for on uh, certainly U.S.-based television networks over the next couple of days? And then more generally, how can they find more about you and, and your book? Of course, they could easily uh, Google 
the book is on all, all the sites, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and uh, half a dozen others. Um, but I'm also part of the that, that other university, uh, Harvard Kennedy School, and and uh, and Columbia University, where I, I do have a a, a website. Um, but so people can get in contact with with, with me there. Um, but uh, I would love to hear what people think of the book. Yeah. And and one final point is that we talk about heroes and my definition is being ordinary heroes. And I think that sooner or later, each one of us will, will be presented with an opportunity to do ordinary things, but in an extraordinary time. And we will discover that ordinary hero with inside of each of us. Joe, it's a great note to end on because sometimes we think of heroes as the select few who happen to have an opportunity to make a difference. You've said it, we all can make a difference. We're all, certainly myself, uh, ordinary, but uh, when the moment comes, we need to be able to step forward and uh, lead ourselves and others through what lies ahead. A special thanks to you, a special thanks to the 343 New York firefighters that gave their lives on 9-11. Uh, including your brother, who was in the North Tower. Really want to thank you for being on the program. And Joe, best wishes to you and your teaching, your writing. And let me just mention the title again. Bus this is Business Radio at Sirius XM. Uh, the title of the book is Ordinary Heroes, a Memoir of 9-11. Special thanks to uh, Joseph Pfeiffer, our guest. Thanks to Patty Hall, our producer, our sound engineer, Chris Teep. I'm Mike Hussein, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Come back next week. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.